another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we seek to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it affects our lives today. Now, I just want to welcome any new listeners. Uh, as you know, the LDS Church has just recently published some essays about plural marriage. It's November 2014, and I am getting all kinds of new traffic, so this is really exciting, and I just want to welcome new listeners. If you'd like, you can start back at episode one that walks you through the practice from Kirtland and Nauvoo until where we are at now, and of course, we have intentions to go all the way up into the present day. Right now, we're still stuck at the turn of the century in the 1890s with the manifesto, and that's what we're going to be talking about today more about the manifesto. And of course, as promised, we're going to jump back and forth a little bit in history. We're going to talk more about Joseph Smith in a few episodes coming up and hopefully cover some more of the interesting frontier stuff, which is my favorite thing to talk about. But we can't forget the amazing importance of this time period that we're going to be talking about. It's fascinating. And we're going to be learning some new stuff. And I just want to point out, since we do have new listeners that it's easy for me to forget that this is a painful thing for a lot of people to experience and to learn about. And so I want to be sensitive towards that. And uh, hopefully I've done nothing to increase that pain. For me, again, telling these stories has helped sort of exercise my demons with polygamy. Polygamy used to be a very painful topic for me to think about as a Mormon woman. And learning about it has really helped me uh sort of come to terms with it and realize that I don't have to claim it. And that has been really helpful. So hopefully others can feel that way. And uh, we're going to be talking about some other painful things. But again, if you can step back from it and not have to look at it as something that you claim, but as a fascinating story in history, that might be a way to to contextualize it in your own life. So we're going to talk about, we talked about the revelation leading up to the first 1890 manifesto. This is what the church would call the official declaration. And if you are, if you are just listening to this and haven't listened to the last one, listen to the last episode about the 1890 manifesto. That's really important that you know the history and the context there. We're going to talk about the history surrounding this, and of course, the 18 Manifesto is not the only manifesto that comes out. I want to talk, I'm going to link to a few books uh, that you should read. One of them is actually written by Mormon fundamentalists, and one of them is one that I plugged before. It's Leonard Arrington's Mormon Experience. Here is what he says about this time period. He says, quote, Three men presided over the transition from 19th to 20th century Mormonism. Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow and Joseph F. Smith. Woodruff had been an eyewitness to many of the significant events in Mormon history. Zion's Camp, Nauvoo, the mission of the Twelve to Great Britain, the exodus from Illinois and pioneering of Illinois and the pioneering of the Great Basin, the Utah War, the United Order, the anti-polygamy raid, dedication of the Salt Lake Temple, and the statehood for Utah. End quote. That is a lot. Wilford Woodruff, as we know, would be the president of the church when all of this stuff is going down the manifesto and the transition from being a church of polygamy to a church that doesn't practice polygamy. Wilford Woodruff would leave behind a 7,000-page handwritten journal that would cover 64 years of Mormonism. As a historian, can you imagine what that would be like to open that up? He would become president of the church in 1889, and he converted in 1834 and would die in 1898. During that time, from 34 to 98, he would travel 175,000 miles for missionary work. He would baptize 2,000 converts. 2,000. <laughs> I know missionaries that don't even baptize a single person. Imagine converting 2,000 people. And he would be around for big changes in the church, and many revelations. In 1894, four years after the first manifesto, 
Congress would pass an enabling act that put Utah on its way to statehood. So at the time, it would be President Grover Cleveland, and he granted amnesty to any more Mormon polygamists. And so following that year, Utah's Constitutional Convention added uh, some teeth to the manifesto by including it in a constitutional provision that, quote, polygamists or plural marriages are forever prohibited, end quote. So, of course, not only does this become a federal thing, this becomes a local state thing. They adopt sort of this manifesto language saying it's forever prohibited in Utah and elsewhere. This would be ratified and, of course, like we talked about in the last uh, episode on the manifesto, the church would be rewarded by having Utah become a state on January 4th 1896. This led to the majority of Latter-day Saints getting used to the idea of plural marriage being suspended. Remember, there was a half century of practice here, and there is still, throughout history, a divide in Mormon history, a divide of this practice. There was a majority of the membership that were less than enthusiastic about this practice. I'm sure this was a collective sigh of relief to many people who, who were opposed to it from the beginning. And of course, there are those that had lived it, vehemently defended it, and really suffered for it. Arrington says in his book that they relied on a hope that continuing revelation would both vindicate and heal their pain if God could authorize the practice of plural marriage, he could also discontinue it. So this idea of continuing revelation kind of makes it okay in many people's minds. Of course, not all, but it made sense to them that if God could bring the practice, he could also do away with it. As we know, the manifesto didn't end polygamy. On the one hand, there were plural relationships that were entered in prior to the Manifesto of 1890, and many of these relationships would be terminated, and this would cause a lot of disruption. And I'm going to talk about some of these people, specifically a woman in my husband's family who, she was the last wife and she lost everything and was very, very poor after these families were broken up. Some plural wives received some kind of substance or none at all. And it depends on the person involved, but cohabitation was carefully ended uh, for some and abruptly ended for others. Then there were those who married before 1890 who continued to live and cohabitate, even if it was against the law. So they saw the manifesto as the church's attempt to, to tell the government what they wanted. And um, they, have, of course, had had these spiritual experiences living the principle to convince them that this is what God wanted them to be doing, even if the law said otherwise. So those folks would um, continue living together, and church leaders and the government thought it was kind of humane if they turned a blind eye to that, because the thinking was, all right, these these couples who are still cohabitating, they're getting older and older, they're having fewer and fewer children, so that means less recruits to uh, the principal, and it will eventually die out on its own. And then, of course, there's a smaller, more interesting group, in my opinion, who refuse to accept the demise of polygamy. Remember how hard the church had fought for this, okay? This is important to understand this. You have to remember they made huge sacrifices. Some people lost everything for it. They built doctrine and culture around it. They built communities around it. And remember, you have John Taylor, who was the president before Wilford Woodruff. He was a sort of hero for polygamy. He was flagrantly disobeying the government and trying to stick it to them. He, he was very adamant and blunt in his speech and became sort of this hero. And, you know, people had had lots of spiritual confirmations. We've, we've talked about this in the series, you know, women having these powerful spiritual experiences. And then all of a sudden for the church to say, sorry, it's not happening. It's akin to many of us when we do, when we live one way and the church says something and we're saying, nah, I know that's not right. So this group saw the manifesto as sort of a way to, you know, keep the government away. And they looked for political loopholes, like the possibility of getting married on the high seas or in other countries, so they weren't breaking the laws of the land in the U.S. 
all the first presidency members either allowed or authorized new plural marriages from 1890 to 1904. So that's interesting. We should point out that, of course, even though people were cohabitating, it didn't stop new marriages from happening. So the first presidency of the LDS Church, even though they issued the manifesto ending it, from 1890 to 1904, they issued and authorized some plural marriages. Some, according to Mike Quinn, as late as 1906 and 1907. One church and then a president who marries a plural wife. Three counselors in the first presidency perform marriages for men who had living wives already. So let's talk about Wilford Woodruff. On the day that the manifesto was accepted in October of 1890, he would personally approve seven new plural marriages to be performed in Mexico. He also approved polygamous ceremonies for a couple of Mexican resi residents as early as 1891. And of course, a lot of this um, I'm taking from Quinn's research, and so I can link to this as well. Woodruff would delegate George Q. Cannon, who was at the time his first counselor, to give approval for more plural marriages from 1892 to 1898. And this approval was in the form of written letters. So we actually have evidence of this. Um, President Wilford Woodruff would do this in written letters so he could sort of avoid personal knowledge of it. He And he would later claim that he had no personal knowledge of these plural marriages, even though that we now know that he sanctioned these. President Woodruff would hold a temple meeting of the First Presidency and the Apostles in 1894 that, due to the manifesto, men would, quote, will be justified in concubinage by sacred vows, end quote, even without a polygamous ceremony in order to raise a righteous posterity. So he was saying, you know, if we have to live this principle and they don't have the legal marriage, that's okay. It will be righteous concubinage. Um, in 1894, President Woodruff gave his approval for Apostle Abraham H. Cannon to marry a new plural wife as a proxy for Apostle Cannon's dead brother. Apostle Cannon actually did this in 1896 while President Woodruff was still alive. And of course, one of my favorite stories of Mormon history, President Woodruff would marry himself a new plural wife in 1897. Her name is Madame Lydia Mountford. She was of Jewish descent, uh, born in Palestine, and she um, came to Utah, and of course, she was on the lecture circuit. So in at this time... It was very popular for, you know, traveling performers to come into town and there would be lecture series. And Madame Mountford was a lecturer and she came into town and he made many, many, many journal entries about Madame Mountford in his journal. He just becomes smitten with her. And of course, in September of 1897, he follows her to San Francisco and on a steamship on the Pacific Ocean, um, somewhere between San Francisco and Portland, he arranges for an apostle to perform a plural marriage. Um, and then, of course, four months later, he he does this again. So this this marriage occurred outside the temple, and so there was no temple record for this. So on November twenty third, nineteen twenty, the ceremony of Madam Madam Mountford and Wilford Woodruff, even though it occurred back in eighteen ninety seven. Remember, seven years after the manifesto, it was repeated by proxy in the Salt Lake Temple. Woodruff's proxy was his son, standing for him because, of course, he is dead at this point. And Madame Mountford's, pro Madame Mountford's proxy was Susan, Susa Young Gates, who was a sister of another President Woodruff's lesser known plural wives. Okay, so now let's talk about Lorenzo Snow for a minute. He was, of course, brother to Eliza R. Snow. He is the president of the LDS Church from 1898 to 1901, but he's also an apostle from 1890. He was generally opposed to new plural marriages and to any plural cohabitation after 1890. As soon as he becomes president of the church in 1898, he stops sending authorities for new plural marriages to Mexico. There were a few exceptions, but he's trying to kind of enforce official this sort of official edict. He, of course, is a polygamist. He cohabitates with his youngest plural wife, who had gone to Canada briefly in 1896, and uh, she has his last child. 
in cohabitating with her, he violates the testimony that he publicly gives in 1891 that the manifesto prohibited cohabitation with the plural wives. He was 82 years old when his last child was born. And he tells Matthias F. Cowley, who was also an apostle in 1898, that he did not want to know about or interfere with um, Cowley's commission by George Q. Cannon to go perform these plural marriages. It's kind of this, don't ask, don't tell, let it happen, but I can't know, I can't have institutional knowledge. And of course, he, you can see Lawrence L. Snow is feeling this struggle of how much do I know, how much should I not know, how much should I do this, and how much should I say it. So institutionally, he's trying to crack down on it, but you can still see that he goes and cohabitates with uh, his youngest wife. Lorenzo Snow would say, quote, I won't interfere with President Cannon's work, end quote, which of course means sanctioning these plural marriages. In 1900, Lorenzo Snow told the presidency secretary that, quote, he admired the gift of post-manifesto plural wife who risked excommunication by her local ward bishop because she refused to identify her plural husband, end quote. So now we're seeing this is this is a struggle. Now these prophets, these presidents, are dealing with bishops that now have to excommunicate polygamists, and yet people in those own wards are exercising what they see as sort of civil disobedience by standing up to their own bishops. So there's this conflict in the church that's actually being sanctioned by the leadership. And of course, Lorenzo Snow says he admires this woman that's, that stands up to that, even though the bishop is just following orders. President Snow tells the bishop to accept her confession and to forgive her transgression without any further requirement. And by 1901, he authorizes Heber J. Grant, who was also an apostle, to marry another plural wife. Two months later, he changes his mind because he feels like there's too much pressure on the church and tries to retract that. And then we have Joseph F. Smith. Okay, Joseph F. Smith, he was a counselor in the First Presidency for the Manifesto until 1901. And when he becomes a president, he serves until his death in 1918. In 1896, as a counselor, he would perform in the Salt Lake Temple a proxy plural marriage for Abraham Cannon. And this had been earlier approved by the First Presidency as well. And this is the only marriage um, that Mike Quinn says he knows of that has evidence that Joseph F. Smith performs after the manifesto. So Lorenzo Snow refuses to allow Anthony Ivins to perform new plural marriages for residents of Mexico. Joseph F. Smith actually decides to privately go against the instructions of Lorenzo Snow when Lorenzo Snow is prophet. In 1900, Joseph F. Smith would have been the second counselor, and he instructs Seymour B. Young, who was the first counsel of the 70 to perform two plural marriages in Mexico. Now, it's possible that this was part of this don't ask, don't tell policy that Lorenzo Smith's, Lorenzo Snow said, kind of just do what you want, just don't tell me about it. I'm going to publicly say one thing and, and privately say one thing and you do whatever you're supposed to do. So you can imagine the confusion, right? Of course, even the inside doesn't even know exactly to what extent they're doing this. That same year, uh, Smith, who was a counselor at the time, authorized Patriarch Alexander F. MacDonald to perform new plural marriages in Mexico for any Mexican residents who wanted them. He also gave authorizations without the knowledge of Lorenzo S Snow, even though Lorenzo Snow specifically says to not allow these marriages in Mexico. Lorenzo Snow reportedly did not know that Alexander F. MacDonald was authorized because he threatens to excommunicate MacDonald in 1901 for performing these marriages. And, of course, MacDonald is getting his instruction from Joseph F. Smith, who's a second counselor. So MacDonald, in response, stops performing these ceremonies for four months. And Apostle Cowley visits Mexico. He performs two plural marriages. And... He tells MacDonald, don't worry about it. Joseph F. Smith has got your back, and he will protect you from church discipline. So what does Patriarch MacDonald do? He starts marrying people plurally again. Uh, when Joseph F. Smith becomes the president, he would renew permission for Anthony W. Ivins to prefer 
to perform plural marriages for Mexican residents. So Anthony Ivins was, you know, the plural marriages were happening in Mexico anyway, but Lorenzo Snow was saying don't do it. So when Joseph Smith becomes president, he says, okay, you can resume doing that. And I would just like to point out, as Barbara Jones-Brown said when we were talking about the Mexican colonies, polygamy was still illegal in Mexico. So Ivins goes ahead, goes ahead with this, and from 1902 to 1904 continues to perform polygamous marriages. And then um, it's sort of ex- his permission is sort of extended that he can perform these for non-residents. Think about what that means. That means if you're a resident of Utah, you can go down to Mexico and get plurally married. This was risky because this required written permission from Salt Lake City to do these. And these written letters from Anthony Ivins to perform these marriages for non-residents of the Juarez stake occurred from 1903 to 1904. President Smith now, Joseph S. Smith is now president, told Ivan, never told Ivins about McDonald. So... President Ivins had no idea that Patriarch McDonald was performing marriages without with authorization. So you have two men in Mexico who are performing marriages. One is getting written consent. The other one has already had consent from Joseph F. Smith for a while. And so they're performing these without knowing that the other one is authorized to do it. On April 17th, 1902, Joseph F. Smith... Um, gave authorization for a man to marry polygamously. And he did it in the way of, quote, as president of the church, I cannot authorize you to marry this plural wife. However, I will not oppose your doing it, end quote. So this is the kind of authorization that that they're giving out at this point. One of the president's secretary uh, proposed a polygamous marriage in 1903, and one of the president's secretaries performs a polygamous marriage in 1907. Of the 16 men who served as apostles from 1890 until 1904, eight of these 16 men married post-manifesto plural wives. So this was being done institutionally by the leaders. And of course, this is all from Mike Quinn's research again. Three of them did not do so, but they did perform plural marriages, and two of them didn't do either of those, but they arranged plural marriages. So only three men who served as apostles from 1890 to 1904 did not participate at all in encouraging, promoting, or entering new plural marriages. Only three leaders of the church. New apostles were appointed in 1904, and this is around the time that the second manifesto occurs. And it assured post-1890 polygamists that the second manifesto was meaningless. Okay, so one of these new apostles actually started dating polygamously. He was dating, dating, not marrying, but dating before his appointment in 1906. And an apostle that was appointed after 1906 performed 43 plural marriages after the manifesto himself. And another apostle who was appointed after the second manifesto enters a polygamous marriage in 1925. So we have many church leaders now still continuing to practice it after the manifesto and after the second manifesto. Joseph F. Smith did not want to know the specifics of the new ceremonies, and he did increase financial support for post-manifesto plural wives and childrens of apostles and mission presidents, and he gave advice for hiding the wife so that they would not be subject to arrest. It's likely that he authorized Apostle Clausen and Cowley to marry their plural wives after the Second Manifesto in 1904. Since we know that Joseph F. Smith authorized a close friend to perform one plural marriage as late as 1906, and according to Mike Quinn, okayed another one in 1907. When the man President Smith um, authorized to perform the 1906 plural marriage was investigated by the apostles for probable excommunication, this man goes to Joseph F. Smith and gets permission to tell the details because the apostles are coming after him. And of course, the apostles now at the time are disturbed by this. They're disturbed by this double speak. Of course, they're all doing it secretly in their own ways, but they're all putting pressure on each other not to do it. So they're getting disturbed. When they hear this, this man saying, Joseph F. Smith to do, told me to do this, they say, we don't believe you. We don't believe that that would happen. And they wouldn't ask him by, they wouldn't even 
check with Joseph F. Smith to see if it was true because they thought it would be offensive to, you know, question his authority and even suggest that he would do something like that. So they exonerate the man from any punishment, but they're upset with it. Now, of course, Joseph F. Smith comes under su suspicion again when the apostles try to excommunicate a mission president who marries a plural wife in 1907. These apostles go back to Joseph F. Smith and they discuss it with him. These discussions would be ongoing for for a long time. The Quorum of the Twelve would exonerate the mission president because there was no witness to the marriage. So that was the evidence that they had. It was actually performed by the now-dead secretary of the First Presidency's office. This is where things get muddy and historians are trying to figure out if these marriages are still being sanctioned now by the late, by late 1910. We do know that Patriarch Judson Tolman performed plural marriages from 1906 to 1910, but this is when Joseph F. Smith stops protecting these men. So when Judson Tolman starts performing these marriages, the men that are being excommunicated for this um, are not being protected by Joseph F. Smith anymore. The patriarch and several others he married were excommunicated by the apostles, and Joseph F. Smith would intervene. He prevented their excommunication, and he continued to let prominent men in church office, in prominent offices, who had been married by Judson Tolman, stay there as long as 1907 or 1908. And in some cases, they continued to cohabitate with their wives. Okay, now we're getting into a whole messy thing. And so I know we're covering a lot of dates and times, and we're going to go back and talk about some of these cases, hopefully more in depth. But one of the most complicated and controversial relationships was Joseph F. Smith to John W. Woolley. They were friends. Uh, John W. Woolley was a friend of most general authorities of the church. He was a pioneer member of the church, um, and he lived late into the 20th century. And we do know that Joseph F. Smith performs John W. Woolley's civil marriage in the Salt Lake Temple in 1910. And this shows their sort of closeness of friendship that Joseph F. Smith would perform that. Woolley would serve as a state high councilman in 1877 and a Salt Lake Temple worker in 1894. John W. Woolley begins performing plural marriages in about 1912. And his son, of course, is the one that writes the first account of the 1886 revelation to John Taylor at the Woolley's home. This is where we start to see the breaks in the church. Woolley is an important name. John W. Woolley performs plural marriages even though he was an ordained patriarch in 1913. Patriarchal authority by ordination was not the basis of which he was performing this. And the reason why that's important is... Woolley is going to claim that he has authority, prophetic authority, from John Taylor in an 1886 revelation. And, of course, he was a patriarch, so he had that authority as well, but those are separate authorities. Remember that. We're going to talk more about Woolley later, but I just want you to remember that name because Woolley, of course, is starting to perform these marriages after the manifesto, and it becomes a problem. We do know uh, other apostles. George Q. Cannon um, made polygamous vows with a woman who was 62 years old when the manifesto was issued. Um, Anthony H. Lund, who was an apostle from the manifesto, although he was an apostle before and after the manifesto until 1901, he would perform plural marriages in 1892 in the Manti Temple for a stake high councilman. Um, who else do we have? Oh, and Lund actually performed two plural marriages aboard the Pacific Ocean and one on 1898 on the Great Lakes. Again, these dates are important because this is all after the official declaration comes out. Apostle Lund and now Counselor Lund's sister-in-law married polygamously in Salt Lake City in 1901, and the marriage was performed by Lund's next-door neighbor, Matthias F. Cowley. So Lund was probably the unidentified member of the First Presidency with who Anthony W. Ivan sent letters of authorization to for n new plural marriages for non-residents of Mexico from 1903 to 1904. Now, this is where Reed Smoot comes in. We're going to do a whole episode talking about the Reed Smoot cases because they're very, very important. But uh, Reed Smoot is sort of becomes the poster child for all of this conflict. He 
Contrary to his wishes, Apostles Taylor and Cowley were sustained in April 1905 conference, even though they're still practicing these plural marriages. And, of course, uh, Counselor Lund's son tells Smoot's secretary, quote, John W. Taylor has done right, whatever he has done in reference to the subject of polygamy. So meaning, even if John Taylor's, John W. Taylor is still mar- marrying people, he is doing this right. Um, let's see, John Winder was involved, George F. Gibbs, uh, he was a, George F. Gibbs was a secretary to the First Presidency, and he advised Apostle Heber J. Grant in 1903 to marry a plural wife, and to take her on Grant's mission to England, where she would not be recognized or known by the English. So during that same period in 1903, the Presidency's secretary proposed plural marriage to the woman, but she declines the offer. In 1901, While still secretary to the First Presidency, George F. Gibbs speaks at the funeral of the mother of one of the young women who had declined to enter into plural marriage. And he says, he, quote, commended those who were keeping it alive and were continuing in the faith of their fathers, end quote. And that was in 1921. George Reynolds was a secretary in the First Presidency's office, and he was also a member of the Council of Seventy. As a secretary... He helps draft a final version of the 1890 Manifesto, and he later testifies in his role of the Manifesto in the U.S. Senate in 1903. George Reynolds knew and approved his daughter's plural marriages during 1900 in Mexico. And, of course, uh, he performs a plural marriage in 1907. And another daughter of his became a plural wife in 1908 in Salt Lake City, probably with his approval. So these are all apostles that are sanctioning these after after the manifesto. Franklin D. Richards was an apostle and the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and he was next in line to be the church president from 1898 to 1891. In December of 1890, he unsuccessfully tried to obtain permission to marry, to be able to marry a man polygamously in Mexico. Sorry to perform a marriage for a man in polygamously in Mexico. This would have been four months after the manifesto. He did perform one plural marriage sometime in 1898 in the United States. Apostle Richards would have probably known of uh, Abraham Owen Woodruff's recent patriarchal blessing that promised the apostle plural wives. So Abraham Owens Woodruff is an apostle that's getting a patriarchal blessing saying that he will have plural wives. So it's still in their patriarchal blessings. So Franklin D. Richards promises in a temple meeting in January of 1899 that all of God's promises to Abraham O. Woodruff would be fulfilled. Then we have Brigham Young Jr., who was son of, of course, Brigham Young. He would be the president of the Quorum of the Twelve and next in line to be the church president from 1901 to 1903. He would perform seven plural marriages during visits to Mexico from 1894 to 1895. He also, we talked about this before, marries a plural wife in 1901 in Salt Lake City. And of course, that marriage was performed by Apostle Matthias F. Cowley. In August 1902... Right before he dies and gets sick, Apostle Young counsels another local church leader to marry a plural wife. I find it interesting that if you think about this, in the early days of polygamy, it was a super secret practice, right? And only the high elite knew about it and friends of friends knew about it. And you would obtain, you know, um, certain favors from your friends by giving them certain favors, by letting them marry polygamously. And then, of course, the practice swells in the Utah period, and now we see it whittling away now to this exclusive sort of rite of power and passage. If you knew somebody higher up, if you were a higher priesthood office, you were still given this practice. It's almost like the the principle has come full circle. Another one who practiced it was Moses Thatcher. He was released in 1896 um, because he had a conflict over church and state politics with the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. In 1890, he tries to unsuccessfully obtain authorization to marry a couple polygamously. In 1891, he allegedly gets authorization 
from the First Presidency to perform a plural marriage in Mexico. But his views about uh, plural marriage and Utah statehood sort of change, and he gets dropped from the Quorum of the Twelve, so he loses that power. He actually becomes so stubborn about his conflict of politics that he disinherits his daughter when she becomes a plural wife in 1901 without his knowledge or permission. And by that time, he's no longer a leader of the church, but he's pretty bitter about this sort of doublespeak practice. Francis M. Lyman was an apostle, and he dies in 1906, but he performs a plural marriage a day before the Quorum of the Twelve votes to sustain publishing the manifesto as binding. In his mind, it was not a violation of the manifesto because the manifesto had not been ratified yet by the Quorum of the Twelve. And from 1891 on onward, he's opposed to new plural marriages. So he sneaks one in at the last minute and then he says no more. He did favor allowing men with plural wives to marry new plural wives civilly after the death of their legal wife sort of like how we're seeing today. Lyman would perform one such de facto plural marriage in the Salt Lake Temple for a stake president in 1894. So when we talk about the sealing practices, sort of, you know, still lingering today with this, you know, you can you can have a plural sealing today. If you're a man, you can marry polygamously in the eternities, right? This is a Mormon practice of you can be sealed to more than one woman after your wives are dead. This is sort of the loophole. And this is... Francis M. Lyman is doing this in 1894. So this is starting to take shape here now. 1894, we see the beginnings of the sealing practices. So if anyone is interested in the sealing, current sealing practices, this is a good place to start with Francis M. Lyman. He would publicly preach that same year, quote, No man can obtain exaltation without living plural marriages in this life, end quote. And of course, this was just a lingering of the same doctrine that was taught by other prophets as well. We do know that uh, even though he was adamantly opposed to new plural marriages, he um, would he would also arrange for the excommunications of anyone that was a post-manifesto polygamist. So now we're seeing this divide as well in the apostles. There are those who are cracking down hard on it and those who are secretly helping facilitate it. Lyman was one that was cracking down on it. He arranged for the excommunication of several polygamists in 1906. He did his best to get the pre-1904 polygamists released from church office. He wants them released from their offices. He tries to excommunicate every post-1904 polygamist he can locate. John Henry Smith was an apostle and becomes a first presidency counselor from 1910 to 1911. He performs no plural marriages after the Manifesto of 1890. But he actually, according to Mike Quinn, virtually, this is Mike Quinn's words, virtually forces Apostle Heber J. Grant to perform two plural marriages in Mexico in 1897. Apostle Smith instructs John W. Taylor to perform six more plural marriages in 1898. And these were the first post-manifesto plural marriages of which either of these junior apostles performed, and they did it under the orders of John Henry Smith. Apostle Smith is more involved in this. There's Apostle Teasdale, who encourages men to take more plural wives in 1904. Um, and, of course, Heber J. Grant gets involved with this. He was an apostle. Heber J. Grant was an apostle until the church, until he becomes church president in 1918, and he would serve until 1945. And he really sent out contradicting messages about the post-manifesto plural marriages. He publicly states that polygamists should stop cohabitating with their wives, and he does it. He, for four years, he stops cohabitating with his plural wives. But then it, he realizes that Joseph F. Smith and other general authorities were violating their public discourses regarding their pledges to stop cohabitating with plural wives, so he resumes public cohabitation or polygamous cohabitation. And of course, he doesn't know about all these other marriages being granted, but by 1897, when he is, you know, moved his way up in the quorum, uh, John Henry Smith orders him to perform two plural marriages in Mexico, like I talked about, and Apostle Grant apparently does it under protest and very reluctantly, but he still does it. So, and of course, there are more and more and more. There are just many, many cases of these, and there's so much confusion. 
Um, John W. Taylor, of course, is marrying couples and then he's marrying wives himself. And, uh, it becomes, it becomes a problem. We know that in a discussion of 1892, John W. Taylor referred to the 1886 revelation from his father. Remember to Wooly. So this, we're going to talk about this revelation, but this basically says that they have to still keep practicing it. It has to be on the earth. And of course, this is about the time he unsuccessfully proposes marriage to a sister of his most recent wife. And, um, now there's just rumors flying and the apostles don't really know who to trust each other on this. And they can't really speak openly and they don't know who to trust because the government has spies everywhere. John W. Taylor, we're going to talk about more when we talk about, uh, the breakoffs of the church, but he was, he was involved in this. He, he gives a lot of people permission to do this. Mariner W. Merrill, um, was also an apostle until his death in 1906, and, uh, he would give recommends to people to get married polygamously. Um, Abraham O. Woodruff, who had the patriarchal blessing, died in 1904 in Mexico with his first wife. And after a year after his ordination as an apostle in 1897, he, of course, obtains his plural wife. And in his patriarchal blessing, it says that he will have great posterity. And he and his first wife remained childless for a while. Um Apostle Franklin D. Richards, of course, promises him that God would fulfill these promises. So nine months later... Owen's wife bears her first child, and a month after this birth, fulfilled the promises by Patriarch and Apostle Richards. So he starts performing. So Woodruff, Abraham O. Woodruff starts performing two plural marriages. And um, then in July of 1900, he meets his first plural wife. Three days later, he asks his father, her father for permission to marry her. Within two months, he obtains permission from First Counselor George Q. Cannon. He marries her in plural marriage. Um, apparently doesn't ask presidents, no. Apostle Woodruff would prophesy in the Warren State Conference that polygamous children would always be born in the church until the second coming of Christ. Counselor Smith sits on the stand next to him, doesn't try to correct him. Seymour B. Young, who is a president of the 70, I guess stood in conference and, in, and endorsed his remarks. Woodruff would marry his new plural wife in Preston, Idaho, and this marriage was performed by Apostle Cowley. Now, Cowley, Smith, uh, Woolley, all of these guys, they are sort of considered heroes of the fundamentalist breakoffs, right? And you can see why this is so confusing. Who has the real authority? When I grew up in the church, I was taught that uh, we were the true church and they were the church. You know, these guys were in apostasy. They were doing things wrong. That has been the official statement that the LDS Church has been making since 1890, and then even stronger in 1904. But we know that's not the truth. We know that these prophets were sanctioning these people to practice these marriages. Can you understand why fundamentalists would be furious with the LDS Church? They think that we are all lost and in denial, because clearly there is basis for this authority. And of course, the 1886 revelation and other revelations like it give supposed authority to these men to continue to practice this on earth, even if it's in opposition to what the official church is doing. So this goes with my theory that there is this institutional idea that we are given busy work to hold the institution on earth while a certain select few righteous people are allowed to practice the principle. And this, if that theory was true, that would explain why uh, the church cannot disavow themselves from polygamy because they still institutionally believe in it, even though they can't practice it. So let's talk about Reed Smoot for a minute. I know we're getting on in time, but Reed Smoot becomes an apostle in 1900. He specifically adds to this idea of Mormon persecution in the 20th century. B.H. Roberts, who is a member of the First Council of Seventy and who is also a very known polygamist, was sent to Congress in 1898. And in the year between election and the beginning of B.H. Roberts's, Roberts's term, a petition that had seven million signatures arrives in the nation's capital. And it is begging conference 
Congress to refuse to seat him. Public, the public would not tolerate B.H. Roberts as a congressman. And they especially didn't want to tolerate him because he had more than one wife. And of course, he was denied this seat by overwhelming House of, by overwhelming vote in the House of Representatives. This actually triggers my Mormon persecution complex. When I think about this story about him going to office and then seven million signatures coming in and they deny him, it makes me deeply sad as a Mormon because it's discrimination, right? And we can understand growing up as a Mormon kid with these stories, like how sad this is and how sad they must have felt to have this sort of persecution, again, on top of everything else. And yet I, I understand how it happened. The government had a huge mistrust of of the church because they they didn't earn the trust of the public. They would constantly say one thing and do another thing. And of course, we know with Reed Smoot at this time in 1900, they're still continuing to do this. So four years later, after B.H. Roberts is denied, Reed Smoot, who is a monogamous, is elected to the Senate. Um, and of course, there's protests again because they say that there's no, you know, separation of church and state. They know that the church, um, appoints leaders to be both a state leader and a church leader and they give them, you know, power over everything temporal and spiritual. And that's a problem for them. So they, they lead this campaign, but the campaign doesn't work and Smooth was seated. And, but it didn't stop petitions. Petitions kept happening after Reed Smooth seated. So the Senate becomes under tremendous pressure, and they finally decide, okay, we're not going to kick him out of his seat, but we're going to investigate him. And of course, this investigation now becomes more about an investigation on the church than it does about Reed Smoot. So the Senate Committee of Privileges and Elections begin hearings in January of 1904. Now, 1904, I just have been telling you about all the things happening in uh, the manifesto. The second manifesto comes out in 1904, but of course, we know up until 1925, there's still plural marriages being san- sanctioned by leaders of the church. This this investigation by the Senate committee um, would bring on Joseph, President Joseph F. Smith and several other high-ranking officers in the church to testify. They subpoena four apostles who were accused of taking plural wives. But by the time um, the trial happens, two had poor health and had died. And the two that were healthy, John W. Taylor and Matthias F. Cowley, refused to appear. They're pulling a John Taylor. They're going to be stubborn about it. So Joseph F. Smith is in a difficult position. He's the father of five polygamous families, and he's torn between those who consider it a duty to perpetuate the principle, men that are actually in his own presidency, and knowing that the church cannot survive another public legal battle with the government about polygamy. He just knows this. So he goes to the committee, he acknowledges living with his plural wives, which is a technical violation of the law, but he also denies personal involvement in or knowledge about new plural marriages, which we know isn't true. So we do know that after this ordeal, Smith returns to Utah and decides to try to more officially endorse his practice. That's when we get the second manifesto in 1904, which we'll talk about on its own. According to historian Kathleen Flake, quote, the four-year Senate proceeding created a 3,500-page record of testimony by 100 witnesses on every peculiar peculiarity of Mormonism, especially its polygamous family structure, ritual worship, practices, secret oaths, open canon, economic communalism, and theocratic politics. The public participated actively in the proceedings. In the Capitol, spectators lined the hall, waiting for limited seats in the committee room, and filled the galleries to hear floor debates. For those who could not see for themselves, journalists and cartoonists depicted each day's admission and outrage. At the height of the hearing, some senators were receiving a thousand letters a day from angry, angry constituents. What remains of these public petitions fills 11 feet of shelf space, the largest such collection in the National Archives, end quote. The Reed Smoot hearings was a circus, and we're going to devote a whole episode to talk about this, but you, and I'll post the political cartoons there. It was a scandal. Um... And of course, some of the charges um, in the hearings were that church leaders were still practicing plural marriages, and of course they're denying it, but 
It's true. They also asserted that the church was exerting too much influence in Utah politics, which of course was true. Um, they charged them with requiring people in the temples to take oaths, to seek, to take oaths of vengeance against the United States, which of course was true. Um, and that they accused them that members believed revelation was higher than the laws of the land, which of course was true. And so, Again, we'll talk about all of these, but it, it's a fascinating, fascinating time. So the Reed Smoots hearings really puts additional pressure and kind of brings in this second manifesto, which is important to know. But as we know, all of these marriages are still happening. From 1905 onward, Reed Smoot pressures Joseph F. Smith to excommunicate all post-manifesto polygamists, no matter who performs or authorizes those marriages. Of course, he doesn't realize that Joseph F. Smith is doing this himself, too. He fails um, at having Joseph F. Smith do this, but he does get John W. Taylor and Matthias F. Cowley released. He does this by saying, I will resign from apostleship if they are not released. And you have to imagine, Reed Smoot was on trial for this. He was the main focus for the circus. There was public hatred for the man. So he comes back and say, says, nah, we're not doing this anymore. He also prevents the appointment of at least one post-manifesto polygamist, Ben E. Rich, to the First Council of 70, 70 in 1909. So now this is a complete turnaround. You have... Brigham Young and other church leaders saying, listen, if you don't marry polygamously, you're not going to be in a high priesthood position because you're not going to be a leader over a polygamist. And now you have Reed Smoot coming back from the hearing saying, if you're a polygamist, you're not going to be called into office at all. Can you imagine the conflict these men felt? It would have been a very interesting time to be a man of prominence in the church. This would probably be the time that you would want to be the guy in elder scorn that keeps your head down. Hiram M. Smith becomes an apostle in 1901. When he is ordained, he is given the admonition that he needs to accept the principle of plural marriage. So he visits Canadian Mormons in March of 1902 with Apostle John W. Taylor and Owen Woodruff. Later, Hugh B. Brown remembers that all three indicated that they did not approve of the suspension of polygamy. So the the divide is increasing in the first presidency. We don't know that Hiram Smith advocated any new plural marriages verbally, but by October 1903, he was expressing in the temple um, his opposition to perform plural marriages. And after that meeting in the temple, Mariner W. Merrill tells Apostle Smith to marry a new plural wife as soon as possible. So Hiram M. Smith in 1904 denies before the Quorum of the Twelve that he ever encourages any plural marriages around the world. So now they're having these meetings and they're saying who's doing this, who's not. And they're denying it and they're lying to each other and some are doing it and some are not. George Albert Smith becomes an apostle in 1903 and he's a church president from 1945 to 1951. And his father, Apostle John Henry Smith, tells mission presidents that he could not sustain his son as apostle if George Albert Smith did not accept plural marriage. And then he tells his son the same thing when um, he becomes the apostle. In October 1904, George Albert Smith expresses his sort of opposition to the performance of new plural marriages. And this he doesn't say he rejects it. He just expresses concern. So you can see he is also torn. Reed Smoot, of course, is putting more pressure on them. George Albert Smith is said to sort of try to help intervene and tries, you know, to tell them to, he tries to protect them. We know apostles in 1909 and 1910 are still courting other women. Um, and of course, some are getting excommunicated, some are getting released, some are not, some are officially are officially getting sanctioned. So those are some of the men that are practicing it. Um, there are also some prominent women that we should talk about. Julie Ann Goodbrioskin was the young lady's uh, YLMIA board member from 1898 to 1926. She becomes a plural wife in the 1903, in 1903, 
of a general board member, Louis A. Kelch, who was the father of Louis Kelch, who became a martyr of the fundamentalist movement with his many imprisonments in the in the famous 1945 raid. So she was a prominent woman. Um, we have Lillian Hamblin, who was a BYU faculty member from 1898 to 1902. She becomes a plural wife of Apostle Abraham H. Cannon in 1990, 1896 in a Salt Lake temple ceremony, and in 1901, she becomes a plural wife of Bishop Louis M. Cannon. We have Amelia B. Carlin. She was one of the earliest lady female missionaries. In 1901 to 1902, becomes a plural wife of James G. Duffin. Hannah Grover becomes a plural wife in 1904 of Victor W. Bex, Victor C. Beckstead. Uh, we have... Harriet Benyon Harker, she was a plural wife in 1899 of Apostle Matthias Cowley. The ceremony was performed in the Logan Temple. Again, 1899, after the manifesto, they're performing plural marriages in the temple. She was a member of the Relief Society General Board from 1906 to 1910. Um, she was actually released from the General Boards when Reed Smoot was putting pressure on the anti man you know, post-manifesto marriages. We have Nancy Murphy Humphrey. She is plural wife of Jibbe's E. Durfee. Uh, Martha Jane Lefevre was president of the stake YLMIA. She becomes a plural wife in 1902. Alice Caroline McLaughlin. She was in the Tabernacle Choir from 1891 to 1893. Becomes a plural wife to Mission President Ben E. Rich. Valate Pearson becomes a plural wife in 1900 of the general board member Hugh, Hugh J. Cannon. She served on the primary general board. And uh, Margaret Curtis Ship was a physician and becomes a plural wife in 1891. Catherine Sorensen was state primary president. She becomes a plural wife in 1903. Clarissa Thatcher. She was Apostle Thatcher's daughter, and was a guide at Salt Lake Temple Square. She becomes a plural wife in 1901. Pearl Udall becomes um, a plural wife after the Second Manifesto of 1904 to Apostle Rudger Clausen. She was a member of the General Board of for the Youth, and um, but as soon as President Grant becomes president, he releases her. Fanny Woolley, an early lady, an early female missionary from 19. 100 to 1902 becomes the plural wife of stake president George C. Parkinson. She was on the president board. Um, and all this info, I'll link that that particular info was from a presentation that D. Michael Quinn gave. So I'll list that. But anyway, that was a lot of information, a lot of names, a lot of dates jumping back and forth. I'm sorry if that was so scattered. But I want to really impress upon you how many people were still practicing plural marriages. It becomes a secret principle. Again, the secret sacred principle. And yet there's there's almost, if not more, confusion as there was in Nauvoo. There's secrecy, people not knowing, other people not knowing. It's like it came full circle. And of course, this is important groundwork for you to understand the factions that are going to break off. All right? If anything, I'm asking you to have more empathy for fundamentalists, to understand their mindset of where they're coming from. Break away from the narrative that we were taught as LDS members of the church that these guys were off alone in the woods. Clearly, they were given a sort of institutional inside knowledge that we weren't given. And so it makes sense to them why they're practicing this. When you have all of these different presents and apostles saying one thing and doing something else. So again, that was really confusing, but it's the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the Reed Smoot hearings in more depth. We're going to be talking about the 1886 revelation. We're going to be talking about the Woolies and the Cowleys and uh, more about Joseph F. Smith and George Albert Smith and Heber J. Grant and all of those men. But I'm going to post some additional reading. It'd be good to get some additional reading on this groundwork because it's going to get really messy up in here. So thank you again for listening. This is an exciting time to learn history. It's, I'm just really excited to be doing this. Uh, the New York Times tweeted my podcast today. So it's been a really, really exciting time. And if I'm a little scattered, that might be why. So thank you, Laurie Goodstein, for, for doing that. And uh, 
Make sure to follow Laurie Goodstein from the New York Times on Twitter. And uh, thank you again for listening. Please make a donation if this series is meaningful to you. Donations help uh, fuel and fund my research and pay for our server fees. So thank you again for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.